Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the NBN. You're listening to a special podcast we're doing in conjunction with our friends at Princeton University Press. We call it the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. In the podcast, we'll be publishing two interviews with Princeton authors every month. If you're interested in following along, you can subscribe to the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast on the NBN or on your favorite podcast app. The podcast includes not only interviews in the series, but all the interviews we've ever done with Princeton authors, hundreds of them. We hope you enjoy this series, and we hope you visit our friends at Princeton University Press on the web. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the podcast, and today I'm very happy to say we have Russell Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum on the show, and we'll be talking about their terrific book, A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. Russell and Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, Perhaps you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Nancy, why don't you start? I'm... The uh, Senator Joseph Clark Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government at Harvard Emerita, and my field is political theory and the history of political thought. And the book before this, this probably most uh, relevant to your listeners, is a book on political parties called On the Side of the Angels. Thank you very much, uh, Russ. Would you like to say a few? And words? also, like Nancy, I teach political theory, and I teach it at Dartmouth College. And also, like Nancy, I've worked on parties and the place of parties and partisanship in democratic theory. And Nancy and I have worked together on that topic on lots of different pieces. And, and you know, it was probably that that got us into thinking about conspiracies. Um, mm-hmm. Because parties were, now we, we just take for granted that there will be parties in democratic politics and they will contest openly with each other for, for office. But prior to the modern age of democracy, parties were thought of as conspiracies and um, and they were thought of as seditious. And when they were uncovered, they when their actions were uncovered, um, their leaders were usually killed. <laughs> That's so, pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I know this very well. I, I'm actually a historian by training and I did my research and and writing on the early modern period before there were any parties. So Yeah, you're you know all about it. Right. I do. I do know. I, I do know about it. Yes. So as I told you in the pre-interview, I, I was I begin with the same question. And that is, why did you write a lot of people are saying the new conspiracism and the assault on democracy? Russ, why don't you go first since we let Nancy go first last time? You know, as I was just saying, we got into it from from thinking about parties. That's how we got to thinking about conspiracies, conspiracy theories and conspiracism and contemporary politics. And we started to, of course, we immediately saw that there was a a tendency to recategorize parties as conspiracies to to kind of convert the legitimate opposition into an illegitimate opposition to to take opponents and and describe them as enemies um, and even suggest that the right thing to do with an opponent after you win an election is to lock her up and obviously this development is alarming for anyone who thinks that there's something to be said for you know liberal democracy and, and I think we, you know, we hoped that by describing it, by describing the development, by naming it, we could, um, we could, we could maybe help arrest it. Nancy, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I'll make it a little more specific and uh, 
uh, circumstantially oriented, which is that um, it became very clear in the 2015 campaign leading up to the election that Donald Trump had a conspiracist mindset, that he saw things in terms of him being the victim of covert forces, that this was his almost automatic response to political events. And uh, what, what really drove me into wanting to do not just the dissent piece, we wrote a few short pieces, but a book on this, um, was what happened right after the inauguration. Russ will remember this. Uh, uh, during the campaign and after the inauguration, Trump said that it was the biggest inaugural crowd in history, you know, the greatest ever, nothing comparable. And when the National Park Service has this duty, um, uh, launched photographs of the inauguration day or two afterwards that showed that the crowd was modest in comparison to what the president had claimed. He said that the photographs were doctored, that the National Park Service had this conspiracy to make him a liar or to depress the size of his crowd. And this was, I think, the earliest uh, notion of a deep state and the, the fact that it would cover everything from the petty to the most uh, fundamental to the operation of government. Yeah, I actually, re I remember that. Is it, Russ, you were going to say something? Well, it's just this extraordinary moment. I mean, it's preposterous. Um, but it wasn't said in an ironic way. <laughs> he really thought the pictures were doctored, or at least he... he and, and, and it also came within 24 hours of the inauguration. He didn't, it's like he couldn't enjoy being president for a second. <laughs> Yeah, you would think he, you know, becoming president, that's a pretty big deal. You'd think yeah, he'd be he'd pretty happy for a little while after one that. Weekend. Yeah. <laughs> one more thing about this particular event. Um, it led us uh, almost immediately to one of the arguments we make about why this is such an assault on democracy. And the first argument we made was that it's disorienting. I mean, the National Park Service doctoring these photographs, it was an assault on common sense. Assault, <laughs> you know, everybody's sense of reality, what did it mean? And ultimately, as we began to work this out, we thought about, first of all, what are the perils of a population that's disoriented and doesn't know what to think, whose common sense has been assaulted, but also the fact that it was leading to something we need for developing amazingly quickly, and that is an what we call an epistemic divide or epistemic polarization about what it means to know something. It's not just the administration was lying or misinformed or exaggerating or whatever. It was that it was making claims about events that were happening that had no basis in the kind of evidence and argument that we think of as reasoning, whether in politics or anything else. And so there is this divide deeper than the partisan divide, we think about what it means to say that you know something. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the most interesting parts of the book, the part that I really enjoyed, and this perhaps has to do with my background as a historian, is this distinction you make between classic conspiracism or conspiracy theories. I shouldn't use the word conspiracy theories, as I'll explain in a second. Classic conspiracism and a new conspiracism. Can you tell us the distinction between that? Why don't we begin with you, Nancy? Well, a, a classic conspiracy theory is what any theory is. It's an explanation. It tells you about what, what underlies an event, what can explain what's happening. What makes it a conspiracy theory is, is that it says that things are not as they seem, that, that you have to uh, 
look at the covert forces and the nefarious and malignant forces that are undercover and they have to be revealed. But other than that, conspiracy theory uh, works the way any theory does. It produces evidence and arguments. There are dots and the dots form patterns and from the patterns you can uh, discern what the intent of the actors really, really was. Mm -hmm. And it's a theory too, because if you expose it, um, the consequences of the conspiracy can be uh, reduced or annulled. And you have to know what the goal of revealing the conspiracy theory is. Is it justice or is it independence or a better sense of law? So there's usually some sort of ounce of utopianism behind conspiracy theory. That if you can reveal it and if you can um, uh, eliminate it and counter it, then the world will be better. And then the new conspiracism, what is that exactly? You know, if the, if the classic conspiracy theory starts with a, a you know real event or something that we're trying to understand, why why you know Britain would would put Massachusetts under martial law in 1775 or or how 19 um, people you know plotting from the sands of Afghanistan could possibly successfully attack the United States of America, the World Trade Centers, and the Pentagon, if if you're trying to, you know, with classic conspiracy theories trying to explain something that, an event that everyone can see, the new conspiracism doesn't try to explain an event. There's no event in Pizzagate. What is Pizzagate, which is the narrative in which Hillary Clinton and her campaign chairman, John Podesta, are engaged in a child sex trafficking ring centered in the basement of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. What does that explain? What event does it, doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't start from an event. It doesn't adduce any kind of evidence. There's no effort like mimicking investigative journalism to gather facts, to find patterns in those facts. Um, and it doesn't, in the end, hold the powerful to account. It doesn't make the world more understandable or more controllable. It makes the world more strange, more mysterious, more magic, and, and, and more uncontrollable. So mm -hmm. in, a, in a phrase, What's happened is that conspiracy and theory have become decoupled. We have conspiracy without the theory. And as Russ says, it dispenses with any kind of evidence and argument, and it works by bare assertion. The election is rigged, period. Climate change is a hoax, period. The deep state is planning a coup, period. Yeah. No evidence, no argument. There's nowhere it can go, and there's nothing that's immune. In each of those cases, it's almost like one word substitutes for theory. You know, coup, hoax, rigged. Um, <laughs> and that word hoax, by the way, is used over and over and over again in all kinds of different contexts to, you know, adduce a, a conspiracy that's never explained, that's never, you know, that, that, that's never described in any detail. Because it is just a, it's just a bare assertion without even, some now, without even a narrative. Um, yeah, I would, I would almost call it a gesture, and I'll come back to that in a second. But before we move on, not to belabor the point, so the JFK assassination and the idea that, let's say, the mob was behind it, that's an empirical assertion. You can go find out. And actually, I interviewed a person, a very serious professor, a historian, who actually went down this rabbit hole and really looked into it. Um, I, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he 
definitely used the tools of our trade that is as academics or scholars or even scientists and he tried to find out whether it was true so that, that, that is that's a classic conspiracy theory that's right an important point the conspiracy theorists are like social scientists or like investigative journalists and what they're claiming and the explanation that they're offering takes books and volumes, right? It's full of- Oh yeah, this guy spent a lot of time. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, think about the assassination of JFK. How many books have been written about this? Or uh, the World Trade Center destruction. Yeah. They're from the left and from the right. We like to use the example of architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. And if you go to their website, it's all about the temperature of jet fuel and so on and so forth. And so somebody once said, and I think it's really true and worth you know, repeating, that real conspiracy theory just is social science. And that social science, I, you know, to reverse it, is conspiracy theory. You're trying to find out the hidden paths of power. Yeah, yeah right. Right. Go, go if ahead. If the Russ. world were really easy to understand, we wouldn't need social science. And we'd all be out of a job and there are things like it's hard to understand you know how does the most protected person in the world get assassinated by a lone gunman it just the the cause is so puny the effect so massive and the whole event so unlikely that it really defies understanding and and i think you know conspiracy theorists want to see causes that are in proportion to effects and, and so they'll often adduce a cause, whether it's the mob in that case or the U.S. government was in on the planning. And that at least puts a cause in that, that kind of balances the equation that's on par with the effect, the, the killing of a United States president. Yeah, if we were philosophers of science, we'd say that the assertion was empirically rich. Right. <laughs> there's, there's actual data. You can... This is the point at which I have to insist that some conspiracy theories are true. They're correct. And some conspiracy theories are even progressive. In fact, the progressive era of politics in America, which is where investigative journalists and others uncovered smoke-filled rooms in which candidates for elections were chosen and corporate boardrooms in which monopolies were maintained. They, they called it muckraking, but we would call it you know, investigative journalism or social science. And out of those conspiracy theories, which turned out to be true, came all kinds of democratic reforms that made the country more directly democratic and reforms that are still with us. Yeah, it's so, funny. I, I was going to say, I was just listening to the confirmation hearings for uh, yeah. uh, Amy Barrett, and one of the senators went on a kind of long and really quite detailed explanation of the really kind of super PAC money and the Bradley Foundation that was behind, I, that he claimed, behind, it was dark money, he called it, the appointment of conservative judges to the judiciary. And yeah. he, it, believe me, it was full of facts and links. And, you know, I could, I, I was listening to it on the radio, but you can easily see a board, you know, with lots of things traced between this person and that person and that foundation and that person. I didn't know about any of this. I don't doubt it's true. <laughs> yeah. Like Jane Mayer wrote a book called Dark Money, yeah. which is the investigation, which is a conspiracy theory that investigates the course of money. Or Naomi Oreskes wrote a book on how. Uh, the climate change deniers work, how they operate, the conspiracy amongst them to deny climate change for you know, industrial gain, fossil fuel companies gain. So there are true conspiracy theories 
and um, they operate in a certain way. Yeah, this is this is one of the things, just to editorialize for a second, that I really liked about your book is that you do take the time to say that a conspiracy theory is really just a theory and they can be correct. And the, the class, I remember I was t- interviewing a guy who wrote a book about conspiracy theories and I, I brought up the Catholic Church and mm-hmm. the abuse of children. For a long time, that was a fringe conspiracy theory. Right. That was true. <laughs> right. We know that now. And so sometimes they're right. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I think it's an important point to make. Um, and they serve an important function. You know, absolutely. They, absolutely. Yeah. They, they can be very liberating. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, Catholic Church is, but by the way, a very good example because sometimes conspiracy theories are not so much about the event itself as about the cover up. Yeah, it was a cover up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's ex- exactly right. But a lot of people, you know, made the, made the assertion that the Catholic Church was involved in this cover-up, and they were thought to be lunatics. Yeah, uh, but they weren't lunatics at all. Um, it's a it's a it's an interesting and good point. So, uh, I gave the example of the JFK assassination as a classic conspiracy theory, but let's take another one uh, that that you use, and that is uh, the notion that Barack Obama was not born on the territory of the United States. <laughs> And this right. is called the birther conspiracy. Right. Um, can you explain how that fits into the model of the new conspiracism? Mm-hmm. Nancy, why don't you begin? You want to begin? Well, sure. Um, well, first of all, it's, it's allied with Trump, as you know. He was yeah. one of the principal people behind it. And it's a very good example of the new conspiracism um, because it's a claim. It's a, a bare assertion that he was not born in the United States. That his when people produced the birth certificate, they said that the birth certificate was forged, and so on and so forth. There's no evidence. There's no argument. I can remember vividly Trump going on TV and saying, "He sent these investigators right to Hawaii, and you won't believe what they're finding." And of course, there were no investigators. They didn't find anything. But the point is that what makes these things work is not evidence and argument. The power behind the new conspiracism is precisely the sheer assertion of it. The one word, the two words, or a lot of people are saying what makes it operate, what gives it validity is uh, repetition and the number of people who will repeat it. And so the question then behind this new conspiracism is who repeats these things and why, what function is it, political function is it serving and um, what makes it operate the way it does? Yeah, Russ, did you have anything to add to that? Well, that's just a key thing I want to underline that Nancy said, which is what gives these Assertions authority is not a process of validation that we kind of trust someone has gone through involving investigation and facts. It's repetition. And when enough people start saying it, it starts to seem true, or it rather seems um, something other than true, it just seems true enough, true enough to be repeated one more time, retweeted, forwarded, liked. And, 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 the new conspiracism invites you to kind of lower the bar for deciding um, what's worthy of, of repeating and, and invites them to think that the truth is kind of irrelevant. It's just whether it's true enough. Repetition mm-hmm. makes things seem true enough. And of course, the effect of something like the birther conspiracy is not to make the world more understandable, to explain a, a vexing event. Um, the effect of it, the function of it in the world is to delegitimate the political opposition. Um, to take somebody like Barack Obama, who for you know Republicans would be an opponent, and convert him from somebody who might be mistaken 
or have prioritized the wrong values um, from their perspective and convert them from, from that sort of person who can be argued with and disagreed with into a person who's illegitimate. He is not qualified to hold office. Therefore, he's someone we don't really have to argue with or contest with according to the rules of constitutional democracy. Um, he's, uh, he's an illegitimate force and, and needs somehow to be arrested or eliminated. If I can add to this, um, ahead, I, I think we're getting at some crucial points here. Um, that that when Pizzagate is put online and people like it and retweet it and so on and so forth, what is it that they believe? Do they believe that there's a pizza parlor in which Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin are cutting the faces off children and wearing them as masks? Well, one person did believe it because Edgar Welsh went with a shotgun to the pizza parlor and began to shoot up the place. And he was arrested and he said in jail, I guess the intel wasn't 100%. But for most people, it's not the, the objective facts of it are not what matters. What matters is that it conforms to their hostilities, to their sense of performative aggression, that Hillary Clinton is so evil that you could circulate a story that she was the head of a, a child sex trafficking ring. And that when these things are circulated, that you're, you're creating a kind of we, a collective, that's bound together, not by the facts of Pizzagate, but by the common uh, ferocious animosities. And I think this is what links it to social media too. I mean, a lot of People, many people have written about the internet and the importance of it behind conspiracism and other kinds of misinformation, and that's true. But we emphasize something else, which is that the social media has a kind of special congruence with conspiracism. Why? First of all, because you can actually see and measure that a lot of people are saying it. And second of all, you really do create these social networks in which your people, people are joining into a common we, that if they were just out there dispersing conspiracy theories, they wouldn't have, that they are joined together in what they think of as a form of political participation in spreading these things. And, and that, you know, Nancy, this ferocious animosity that you just referred to, the, the collectivity that's animated by ferocious animosity is a group that's, it becomes very difficult to make politics with, and that's very reluctant to make politics with other groups and with other people. You know, in general, we, there's sort of a baseline choice. We can either make politics with other people or make war with them. And, and if you're not gonna make war, if you're not gonna take up violence and try to dominate and, and protect yourself against others who would dominate you, then, then you have to make politics. You have to learn how to talk and argue and compete with each other without getting violent. And, and that, you know, making politics requires an ability to disagree. How do you disagree with somebody who's the concentration of pure evil, with somebody who would sexually traffic in children? How do you maintain an argument with someone like that? How do you argue with somebody who's constitutionally ineligible to hold office and, and who's loyal to some set of foreign powers, the other allegation about Obama? So this, this ferocious animosity makes democratic politics um, you know, very, very difficult. Yeah, I wondered if you could make a distinction for me between a slur and a slander 
and the new conspiracism? Where's the line between a slur and a slander, just something that you say that denigrates somebody else and the new conspiracism? I suppose, yeah, jump in, Nancy, sorry. No, I think that that, um, we see around us all kinds of slurs and slanders and lies and misinformation and disinformation, but none of them are the same as the conspiracism we're describing because What's essential, the element of a conspiracy claim, is precisely that there is malignant intent to undo something. Mm-hmm. But as coup against the president, I mean, you can slur Nancy Pelosi all you want, but you're not saying that Nancy Pelosi is necessarily involved in a plot, uh, in a cabal, to uh, perform a coup against Trump. So it's, it's not the lying of it. It's not the misinformation of it. It's not the, just the aggressiveness of it. It's the fact that behind it is this, this sort of assumption of uh, a narrative of a conspiracy in America. And I, I, I think I can, let me, let me give you one more illustration of the importance of the fact that it's true enough that whatever the, you believe about the objective evidence of the thing, there's a deeper truth behind it that you're going to assent to and organize around. And, the example I like to give is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was Trump's first uh, press secretary, as you know. And they were circulating a video that showed a Muslim immigrant attacking an American citizen. And it turns out that the video really was a false video, and that was est- established. And at the press conference, people asked Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders about this video. And her answer was really quite extraordinary. Her answer was, even if the video is false, the threat is real. And that's what's important right here, that it's true enough because the threat of Mueller performing a coup uh, is true. Mm -hmm. So in in your way of understanding, these things are really an expression of hostility. They are kind of an elaborate expression of political hostility. You know, I I really want to go further than that. I think that democratic politics is full of hostility. Um, It's you know, we, the stakes in politics are always high. And it's hard not to feel some hostility toward one's opponents if you're activated, if you're attuned mm-hmm. um, to, to what, you know, to what's at stake. And, and you mentioned slanders and slurs. I think, you know, for supporters and, um, you know, campaigners in the, in the midst of a, of, a, of a campaign, a special na- national election, there'll be plenty of slanders and slurs and, um, you know about the other the hyperboles about you know the other the opposition candidate, but um, but actually you know you don't you don't generally we didn't we haven't generally heard candidates for national office for the presidency routinely slander the other side. Um, maybe their supporters do, but they usually try to stay at arm's length from that. And you know democratic politics re- requires an ability to to regard the other side as legitimate, even though you're quite hostile to everything that it stands for and wants to accomplish if we're going to rule. Legitimate such that if it won an election, according to the constitutional rules of the game, it would get to rule. And, um, you know, I, I think of like McCain and Obama in 2008. I'm sure there's a great deal of hostility between the, the two campaigns and the two sides and, and the activists and partisans on each side. But, you know, when McCain was presented um, with the birther uh, conspiracy by a, a voter in a town hall in 2008 who said, I can't trust Obama. I've read about him and he's, you know, he's an Arab. 
McCain cut her off and said, you know, no, ma'am, he's a decent person. He's a family man, a citizen. I just happen to have disagreements with him on fundamental issues. And that's what the campaign's about. And, and, and this was, you know, John McCain insisting that he was running against an opponent, not an enemy, someone he had fundamental disagreements with, uh, but, but not someone um, that, that, that was an enemy of the, of the state, as it were, or a threat to the country. Right. So Russ used the word that's key, I think, to our analysis, that there are two consequences of this new conspiracism. One is the disorientation we spoke about earlier, but the other is the delegitimation of all kinds of political institutions. The delegitimation of the opposition party is the most evident, and we spend a lot of time on it, right? It's not saying that the opposition, that the Democrats are wrong. It's saying that they should be locked up. It's saying that they're treasonous. And I could roll out for you 20 times in which Trump and others in the administration had talked about Democrats per se as being treasonous or controlled by people you've never heard of, people who are in the dark shadows, and so on and so forth. And this delegitimation of political opposition, declaring that they're enemies, uh, not a loyal opposition, really is uh, strikes at the heart of representative democracy, which requires a political competition. And you can want to win the election. You can want to win a majority. You can even want to see to it that the opposition doesn't win you know, for, for several election cycles. But you don't say that they're, that they're treasonous. And, what's yep. become, and what allows you to say that they're treasonous, what, what you know, justifies it, is the notion that they are a conspiracy to undo the nation. They're a conspiracy to undo Trump, or they're a conspiracy to uh, undo the fact that we're a Christian nation or a white nation, that they are doing something that's um, wholly malevolent, covert, and um, uh, abominable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was about to say that this reminds me of the Amy Barrett nomination again, because as I was listening to it, I, it's always rather bracing to hear, or bracing is not the right word, it's a comforting in a way to hear how decorous the senators are to one another, how mm. everybody is so incredibly polite, because that's yeah. not what you hear in the Twitter sphere or any place else. They really go out of their way to be nice to one another. And that's it's, it's, it goes right to your point, I think, um, about delegitimization. The other thing that you touch on in the book is the, if this is the right word, delegitimization of science or fact. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the second, along with the sort of delegitimation of the political opposition, which is the, yeah, know, the that's party the first and the part, candidates, yeah. there's also the delegitimation of um, almost every source of expert knowledge, but especially um, the 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 governmental sources of expertise that reside in executive agencies, these these executive agencies that are staffed with highly trained, almost kind of nerdy types that focus on excavating elemental facts, like the economists at the Bureau of Labor Statistics who come up with the unemployment rate. And, and when Trump was running, he insisted that these economists had conspired to make the unemployment look unemployment rate look artificially low so as to benefit um, um, you know Barack Obama the incumbent and I guess the really shocking thing is that even as president of course he has been running against his own executive agencies and his own bureaucracies in the FBI in the CIA in the State Department and, um, and 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 really all over he suspects that there's a deep state or he alleges that there's a deep state that's out to 
defeat him. And, and the, you know, the consequence of that is that this teaches Americans to, um, to, to, to regard um, elemental facts that come from certain agencies, say about the I don't know, temperature of the surface of the earth, the average temperature of the surface of the earth, as fundamentally fraudulent. And of course, you know, once we don't have access to, to these kinds of facts, once we think that they're completely unreliable, that they're the consequence of a conspiracy and therefore completely untrustworthy, it gets to be very difficult to make effective decisions. It's hard to calibrate a policy to have good results if you don't know anything about the state of the world. And, um, and this is gonna ultimately um, hobble both conservatives in power and progressives in power. It's gonna be hard for anybody to make an effective decision if they don't have access to elemental facts. And so the, you know, the delegitimation of experts really ends up making democracy not function very well and, and has this consequence of delegitimating democracy itself by making it, it's performed by compromising its performance and, and making it look unworthy. Right. I think it's worth saying what delegitimation means because sometimes it's used synonymously with mistrust. And I think that that, that sort of dilutes the significance of delegitimation. Mistrust, you know, Americans are mistrustful of institutions and of politicians and of one another. It's democratic to be skeptical and mistrustful, but not too deeply, not everywhere. And, mis and you know, trust that's lost can be regained. Delegitimation is something much more uh, dramatic, I think. It means that this person or this institution, which is what we're talking about now, knowledge producing institutions, has no meaning, has no value, and has no authority. It doesn't have any authority com to command our consent or our compliance. And uh, this is dramatic because we don't know how you would relegitimate an institution that has been uh, distressed and characterized in this way. I'd like to say one more thing, if we could, about these knowledge-producing institutions and their delegitimation. Um, it's been possible not just by making conspiracy claims, but also by um, installing loyalists. You know, th there are actions here, not just, not just words. There's a German phrase, Gleichschaltung, about how the Nazis kept the agencies, the institutions were there, but they put in it people who would... Um, obey the unlawful commands. Mm. And, and this is true of autocratic and authoritarian regimes. I'm not making a comparison to the Nazis, but it says that you can derail institutions and hijack institutions and put them to other purposes and circumvent them and invent institutions. Uh, although they look like what they were or what they ought to be, they're not because they're operating uh, as if uh, the, the actual occupants of these offices, the civil servants and the knowledge producers and so on, are conspirators. Mm -hmm. So let me ask, a, a, this involves a crystal ball, so you can feel free not to answer. So in terms of delegitimation, I always want to say delegitimization, which is not right. Um, parties and science or knowledge producing institutions is this a lasting phenomenon? Has the ground really shifted underneath our feet or is this just the passing phase? And once Trump is gone and so on and so forth, we will revert back to the norm, whatever that was prior to the advent of Trump. We, uh, you know, we hope, by the way, when we were publishing the book 
we hope that by the time when we were, when we were finishing the manuscript, we, we were hopeful that by the time the book came out, a lot of what we were describing would have disappeared. And, uh, <laughs> you know, turns out that in the, you know, in that time, politics became just completely enveloped by conspiracism. I think, you know, if Trump were to leave, when Trump leaves office, um, our politics won't be so enveloped by it, but I think it will continue to be profoundly affected by it. Um, and part of the reason is that the cause of it independent of Trump. So we have a new communications technology that allows anybody to say anything to everybody in the world for free, which, which allows these bare assertions that have so much political salience and can be so attractive um, to certain communities to, to be disseminated. And in the old communications technology, you had to get past an editor or a producer in order to get something on the air into the paper. And, and, to, and to get past it, you had to you know, show that there was some evidence and support. Not now. I mean, a, a tweet can go viral and um, anybody can communicate with hundreds of millions of people for free. So we're still going to see it. Uh, it, it may be that um, it may be, and I hope it is, somewhat less disorienting than it's been over the past several years, but it'll still be here. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I think um, I, clearly, I think that Russ is right about this. I don't think it will go away. I don't think it will be pushed into the margins and the fringes from which it came. I think it's a weapon that's been proved to be quite effective if you're willing to pursue it sort of exhaustively and everywhere. And so it's going to be made available. And some of it will continue out there in the political culture. But again, to emphasize that if you don't have a conspiracy-minded president who has a compromised sense of reality and the capacity to impose it on the nation, conspiracism won't be as influential as it has been. And I see a sign of hope in COVID-19. I think that reality bites. I think that this disease and the disinformation about the disease and the um, attacks on uh, the doctors and the CDC and uh, so on and so forth has had a powerful effect because it's allowed those people who aren't themselves dedicated conspiracists, um, it's given them backbone and it's given them a very powerful reason to push back against this. Uh, death anxiety you know, works. It has, it has a lot of um, push to it. And I think we're seeing a push back uh, here. And, you know, by the way, the first response to the virus in February uh, 2020 by the Trump administration was to insinuate that it was a democratic hoax. Right. Um, and so the, the reason that didn't work, the reason that didn't have any um, sticking powers because of the reality of it and its threat and the reality of its, of its lethal threat. And so, yes, I think what we're saying is that the antidote ultimately to conspiracism is common sense, is access to a shared world of facts and events supplied to us by our senses, by our actual experience of reality. And, and ultimately, what will contain and defeat conspiracism is common sense. If, if a democratic citizen, citizenry loses that access to a shared world of facts and events, it's fair to say that democracy is impossible. I have a friend who has, in the age of Trump, taken to using the phrase, the reality of reality. <laughs> yeah, the reality of reality. That's good. yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> yes, I know there is a reality because I keep running into it. 
Um, so, Sounds like a good seminar, philosophy seminar. Good yeah, philosophy well, he's a very clever guy, this fellow. Well, I want to thank you both for talking to us today. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network that I'm going to ask you both, and it is this. What are you working on now? Nancy, do you want to begin? Do you have a project you'd like to talk I, about? I, I, I just finished a project. Can I talk about that? That's just yes. being published. Um, for Daedalus Magazine, I, I edited an issue called Witnessing Climate Change. And it's actually related to this because it's about professionals in all aspects of climate change, not just scientists, but also journalists and others. And when it is that they decide that they have to speak out and be, become witnesses. And I say it's related to what's happening now because the same thing is being coming true of doctors around COVID-19. People who would never think of sort of entering in politics and becoming advocates speak out. Mm-hmm. Russ, would you like to talk about your current project? I'm working on a little book called Can the Constitution Work? <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, that's a small topic. You should exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm going to answer it a few, several pages. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Well, we'll have to have, I, I really, you know, we'd love to have you both back on. Let me tell our audience that we've been talking to Russell Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum about their terrific book, A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Insult on Democracy. Russ and Nancy, thanks very much for being on the show. What a pleasure. Yeah, you're and welcome. you enjoyed thanks. it. Absolutely. And let me tell all the listeners, thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast on the New Books Network. I hope everybody has a great week. Thank you. You too. Okay. Thank you.